Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm filling in for Bill Nygut today. What a week in our state, in our country, as the coronavirus outbreak has now changed all of our lives. It'll be our focus today as we look at how this is hitting Georgia, what's going on in our lives and in our economy. With me today is my AJC colleague and senior political writer, Jim Galloway. Jim, always good to have you along. We spent a lot of time together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and now we're going to be spending a whole lot of time apart. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, a couple couple things on the drive in. I, I've got a 30-mile commute uh, one way into the capital every every day. Uh, uh, and traffic was was excellent. It was hardly there <laughs> on the ground. And the other uh, the other thing is is uh, I filled up my my pickup with with gas at a dollar eighty one per gallon. Both of those are good news and really terrible news at the same time. Right, absolutely. Next to Jim is GPB lawmakers reporter and freelance columnist Patricia Murphy. Good to see you again. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. And to my right, State Senator Jen Jordan of Atlanta, who I think will be tell, be able to tell us a little bit like what the atmosphere was like at the. Uh, Capitol last night, which was a late night, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> and next to her joining us for the first part of our show is Cody Hall, the press secretary for Governor Brian Kemp. Cody, thanks for being here. I know you're just a little bit busy. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but I'm glad to be here. Okay. Well, let, let's start off with uh, the numbers. Georgia now has 42 cases of of those with the, with the uh, virus. And um, each day, we, we get an update on that. Uh, we've had just one death, but but we have had a death. Many of those cases, I should say most of those cases, are, are in metro Atlanta. Um, and then we've, we've had a lot of late developments. Um, uh, late yesterday, the University System of Georgia, uh, all the colleges and universities closed their campuses for at least two weeks. Um, a bunch of New Georgia uh, school districts are canceling classes, some, some indefinitely. Um, that includes Atlanta Public Schools, by the way, Fulton County Schools, Cobb County, DeKalb County, Gwinnett County. And then we're going to get a chance to hear Governor Kemp here uh, during his press conference yesterday uh, to where he talked about, you know, uh, what he was asking of, of citizens of Georgia. We must take extra care around elderly individuals, people with ongoing health issues, and those who have a suppressed immune system. We need to help them dramatically limit their exposure to the public for the foreseeable future. Health officials are not now telling us that these vulnerable populations need to avoid mass gatherings and locations with high traffic counts of people, even faith-based services or events. So, uh, Cody, let's go right to you. I mean, uh, the governor has each day uh, come out and said, uh, given given updates, brought brought the task force out, um, uh, pushed this further along. Um, but some people are wondering why not declare a state of emergency. So let's let's start with that. But first, 
you know, not, before we get to the why, which which I'm sure is a big item, but <laughs> something you talk sure. about with him about all the time, what would a state of emergency do? Let's let's start there, sure. and then we can you know everyone can join in talking a little bit about what if, why not with the state of emergency. Sure. So in in the past, the main two reasons that you declare a state of emergency at the state level is for logistics. Number one, um, in the event of a hurricane, you want to make sure supplies and um, infrastructure is able to be built or supplies able to be delivered um, like we see with a lot of hurricanes or snowstorms. The other side of it is funding um, to ensure that usually whenever emergencies are declared at the state or federal level, those funds flow through the Federal Emergency Management Agency down to the state agency, GEMA. This one is a little bit different. Um, the federal funds are flowing through HHS. Um, and so when you look at those two questions, logistics and infrastructure and then funding, um, we're not quite there on the logistics and infrastructure needs for this current crisis we're facing. Um, but that is why the governor has named a task force led by Commissioner John King to look at those two, three, four weeks ahead of today to ensure that if we do have those needs, identifying any buildings or facilities that need to be used, um, that we have a team that's looking at that. On the funding side, we've addressed okay. that um, in the short term with the General Assembly, working with them to allocate $100 million out of the state's rainy day fund um, for that usage. And we actually received $15 million this week um, from the feds that's flowing down to the State Department of Public Health. Um, so the funding is there, um, and we don't yet have a current need on the logistics and infrastructure. But the last thing I'll say is that the governor and the team are trying to be very careful about the message we're sending to the public. Um, and every step, we have been very open and transparent, um, and we've been honest. When the guidelines have changed from the public health officials, we've said that. But I think we are also very cognizant of when the public hears we are in a state of emergency, the mindset changes. Um, and we just want to be cognizant of that as we move forward. So so let, let's talk about that a little bit more. I mean, you talked about the logistics and funding. When the governor declares a sense a state of emergency, does that does he assume certain power or authority? And if so, what are those things? And is that what you're trying to – is that part of the message you don't want to send? Sure. Um, the state of emergency, depending on what is in the state of emergency, you can have a limited one or you can have a broad one. It depends um, – it really depends up – or it, it's really on the lawyers. <laughs> um, so – the in governor, other words, the way the, the actual sure. declaration is drafted. And so, for example, you can do a limited state of emergency to allow truck drivers to drive at extended hours. And you can just have a state of emergency just around that. Or you can give a much broader state of emergency where the governor could close or open public schools, um, have much broader authority with hospitals. Um, so you can really draw it however you want it. And I think that's one thing that we wanted to be very cognizant of, that when you declare a state of emergency – what are you doing it for? And let's be very specific um, so that the public knows exactly what we're asking for um, so that there's no confusion or misinformation. Uh, yeah. One thing that I found interesting about uh, Governor Kemp's uh, address on Thursday, uh, uh, Kevin, was that was that he, he was saying he, he basically said to, to county governments, to city governments, to school systems, you make your, your own call and whatever you decide, we're going to back you. And I, I think this is a very interesting 
situation with the, with the coronavirus in, the, in, in that perception really, really matters. There has to be some buy-in on the local level. And I, I, th- I think the way that Kemp is addressing that is kind of recognition that, that you know, we, 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 still have, we, st- we still have people who are, ske- uh, are, are virus skeptics out in the state. Is that true, Cody? Would you say, do you hear from people like that? Absolutely. Well, I think that there are some counties throughout the state, especially in South and Middle Georgia, that have not seen any cases. They, the surrounding counties haven't seen any cases. They, they don't really see a need for school closures at this time. And that's why a blanket open or closed in terms of local school systems was, we believed, a, a step too far at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the criticisms of the governor of Ohio to to go along that line is that there are just, I think, four cases in the entire state Mm -hmm. declared a state of emergency, asked pro college and high school teams immediately to play their games without crowds. But but one of, I think, the arguments for what he's done is that just because we don't have cases, it could be because lack of testing or they haven't emerged yet. So – What's your what's the governor's and in the governor's office thoughts on that? Sure, and I think it's it, it's really it's really easy to play a Monday morning quarterback with the choices other governors have to make. Um, from our perspective, I think the top priority was to be transparent and in a timely manner, and that if we had to do press conferences every day to update people by the hour of what was going on, we were going to do that because I think the governor wanted to make sure that. We did not send people into a panic, um, but that the information we did have was accurate and timely communicated to the public. Uh, Senator Jordan, I think I said Jordan, by the way, when I introduced you, and I apologize for that. But but what's your what's your perspective on the state of emergency question? Look, I think that that Cody's right, that when the governor declares a state of emergency, it sends a strong message. And, And to be quite frank, it's a message that I think that he. He should have sent. Um, I do think that there are people that are skeptical around this state, even in Metro Atlanta, and I think that's problematic. I think all we need to do is look at the model of Italy um, to see how quickly this can spread and how significant it, it can be, you know, in the blink of an eye. And what I'm most concerned about, especially coming from rural Georgia and understanding a lot of what's going on down there is that right now we've seen um, cases in the metro area, kind of north, you know, Atlanta, all that area. Um, and You've, you've it, had one in Chatham, at least one in Chatham County. Well, the and coast. then Charlton, I've heard, Charlton, too. Right. Um, but, but apart from that, you know, up here we arguably have the ability in the healthcare infrastructure, kind of the strong infrastructure Uh, to deal with it. Emory, the different hospitals, all that kind of stuff. What I know is that we do not have that capacity in South Georgia, in rural Georgia. And so what concerns me, especially if folks down there are like, we don't need to close the schools, it's not that big of a deal, is that then we're really going to have a problem in the South part, in the rural part of the state that really absolutely doesn't have ventilators, beds, uh, capacity to care for these people when they get severely ill. And, and that's what we saw in Italy. I mean, the northern part of Italy had the ability to deal with these cases because they had a strong health care infrastructure. The southern part of Italy did not. So, some of these Georgia counties not only have no hospital, they have no doctors, literally no doctors. And to say that they don't have a case yet, nobody knows who has a case because the testing is inadequate right now. 
I, I think the governor's tone that he has set, I think, has been very good. It's been very measured. As a member of the media, we've been getting uh, consistent information, transparent information. But I think any governor in the country right now um, is at a disadvantage because of the tone coming out of the White House, to be frank, misinformation, um, lack of recognition of how serious the, this could become, information going out to citizens that downplays the threat. Um, I think that makes it very, very difficult and a lack of clear guidance. Um, so I think we do not want martial law. I don't think the governor um, is in a position or would he want to start closing schools en masse. Um, but I think he's in a really difficult situation. Also, because the CDC happens to be in Georgia, I think he's being held accountable for the CDC, and that's not under his umbrella. Well, Patricia, your, your point raises this this testing question. Where where are we on testing? Cody, I mean, I know that's a conversation. every. Sure. It's got to be every single day in, in the governor's office, right? And real quick, I, I want to address something because I know – there is a, a cost to closing schools or taking major action in rural Georgia. Often in these counties, the largest employer is your school. So those janitors, those cafeteria workers, are they going to be able to come to work and get paid if for weeks on end schools are closed in a county that, that doesn't have cases? Um, the public health officials have reiterated that the risk to most Georgians is low. Um, and, you know, for elderlies or those – or elderly folks or for those with underlying chronic conditions, um, those are the folks we're telling to stay home, avoid large crowds, and that kind of thing. On the testing question, that's absolutely something that we're looking at. I mean, that's why um, we were so quick to ensure that the state lab was open and ready for testing. Um, we will be able to, to double the capacity of testing per day when at you the say state double, lab. When you say double, what is that sure. number? We're currently at 50. Um, we're bringing in more equipment and more workers um, and training more existing staff to be able to conduct the test. We think we'll be at 100 by the end of next week. Um, so that's what our hope is. And then you compare or you combine the public testing at our lab at CDC and then private sector testing through LabCorp. And I think there will be other private companies that will be able to get into this space. And I did just get confirmation from our folks that Emory is able to test here in Atlanta. So are you going to – could you hazard a, an estimate on, on where you think we'll be, uh, I, I guess, next week, how many people will be tested or or who gets the priority for testing? I mean, is sure. it – I've got a doctor who's got it in or I'm of a certain profile. How do we decide who to test? The priority and, – and Dr. Toomey covered this yesterday a little bit in saying um, there's a reason why when we test we're usually getting a positive because we're identifying the folks that are ill um, and are visibly ill. Um, and of the most vulnerable populations that we're talking about. So those folks are the, who are the priority to get tested. Um, but then Dr. Toomey and her staff have been coordinating and, and communicating as best they can with local physicians to ensure that they know the hotline to call um, if they need testing and that there's an open line of communication with the county boards of public health to try to get that, that coordination done. In, in terms of that, that hotline, though, I mean, I've gotten – a significant number of calls from, from physicians that are incredibly concerned, physicians in the metro Atlanta area. So we're not even talking about in other areas without hospitals and physicians and the like, where they have called the Department of Health, public health um, hotline number. They're on the phone for two or three hours, and often they can't get a test anyway, quote unquote, from some physicians. Um, 
you know, I think we are absolutely underestimating the gravity of what's going on. But I do look, I'm I'm going to be with Patricia here. I have really appreciated the governor being as transparent as he's been trying to get information out, doing the press conferences. I think that we absolutely need somebody doing that right now because, I mean, we're in a situation that we've never seen, to okay, be quite okay, frank. Um, okay, Connie, okay, so we're – we have we, – we are capable of taste, testing 50 a week? Is that – A is day. It, a day that we're mm-hmm. – okay, uh, maybe 100 a day uh, next week. Mm-hmm. What's the number we're shooting for in, in, in a month, in six weeks? What, what are we shooting for here? I don't have that um, in front of me. Um Number one, because I'm not a medical doctor and I haven't asked Dr. Toomey that that specific question. But I, I do want to say on testing, it's something that Dr. Toomey touched on yesterday that um, I, I forgot to mention is that we're working hopefully across the state to have numerous buildings or, or facilities that are staffed with nurses to be able to test that aren't necessarily a doctor's office or an emergency room. And that's one of those things that the funding that we've gotten from the feds and the state funding that we've asked for and the, the General Assembly has um, agreed to provide, that's something that those funds will be going is, to. Is this like the drive-through testing in, in South Korea? It, it's going to be similar. I, I don't know if it will be actually a drive-through, but um, it'll be similar in terms of it not being an actual doctor's office or emergency room, but somewhere folks can get tested by medical folks. Well, and just as a comparison point, I mean, in South Korea, you know, 15,000 people per day tests are being done. so And that's countrywide. So. And in Colorado. I, I mean, Colorado it. has already drive established. Yeah. I, I guess I also don't understand how some states are able to do drive-through testing um, and other states are at 50 a day. Um, at the, the disconnect between the states is something I've not been able to make sense of myself. Do you have any idea how other states are doing it? Well, number one, there's no guidebook on how to do this, at least from the governor's office perspective. The Department of Public Health has had a pandemic plan for all these kind of things, and and, and that's one of the things that we were looking at weeks back, strategic plan, how do we go about doing this? I think Colorado is in a a little bit different phase than we are. Washington State certainly is. Um, They've had, especially in the Washington State scenario, they've had more cases, more testing that they've had to do, and they've had community spread to where it's not necessarily just travel-related but they've had um, folks in a nursing home that have been infected. So they've had to ramp up things quicker, um, and they've had to ensure that they've been able to get a wider number of folks tested. In Georgia's case, we were blessed that we didn't have that problem to be um, to start off with. Um, we do have a couple of cases on the local level that looks like they were connected um, to that I'm thinking of in Bartow County. Um, but that's... Like I said, that's why we're identifying these building and facilities, um, hopefully within the next week, that we'll be able to offer for folks to get tested. And since you mentioned nursing homes, you and I have talked yeah. about mm-hmm. this. Um, what is What can you all tell people about yeah. their families in nursing homes? How are they sure. being monitored and what's the state doing to keep an because eye on Because to, to be more specific, Patricia, right, the guidance is no visitors at nursing homes. So if I have an elderly parent in a nursing home, and I'm used to going every day to check just to make sure I'm monitoring their care or I may notice something the staff doesn't, I can't go now, right? And that's worrisome, I guess, for many people. Absolutely. And and when you can confront these public health challenges, there's always a cost to taking action. Um, And there's always a cost to trying to protect the the health and well-being of folks in a facility like a nursing home. That cost is that 
loved ones may not be able to get in as often to see their folks that are in, in a nursing home. And that's something that we just have to confront. Those are the tough choices we have to make um, because if, and Lord willing, it won't happen. If you do have someone in a nursing home, those are hundreds of folks in one building sometimes that are incredibly at risk of catching this virus and then seeing very um, painful and damaging um, effects of the virus. So if we have to take some of these tough choices to ensure that our, our most vulnerable folks are not at risk of this virus, I think that's a smart choice to make. I want to jump into one more thing because we're not yeah. going to have Cody for too much longer. <laughs> uh, he's got to go to that day job that keeps him so busy. That's but, right. Um, one of the things going on that's that's been a source of uh, you know some controversy, definitely a lot of interest, is the quarantine area set up at uh, Hard Labor Creek State Park. Mm-hmm. Now we have uh, uh, State Rep David Belton, who 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 that's in his district, and have him. Let's hear from him a little bit on what he's had to say about that it's a very remote site it's a tiny portion of hard labor creek you know hard labor creek is six thousand acres this is probably no more than three or four you cannot see any visible private residences from the site it's it's heavily wooded Uh, there's seven very small camper really trailers that can house maybe you know one maximum of two people and I saw a lot of state patrol presence and a really a high degree of uh, professionalism around uh, keeping this quarantine isolated. So, Cody, um, that, explain the decision there uh, for what the sure. state did. And how many people are in that spot right now? Is it, is it just one? Do I have that right? Yes, sir. Okay. It's just one currently. So um, a few weeks ago um, when we were preparing for what may come at that time, um, the governor directed the Department of Natural Resources, GEMA, and the Department of Public Health to start identifying places that, in a worst-case scenario, if we have to put a population of people somewhere, where would that be? What would it look like? Um, how do we make sure that we continue to give services to those And when you folks? say a population of people, what do you mean by that? And that's what I'm about to get into. So okay. um, in terms of Hard Labor Creek State Park, um, we identified that there was a gap in how we were going to treat a population that that fits this. Number one, they were not critical, so they didn't need to be in a hospital. But then number two, they didn't have a viable option for isolation at home or with a neighbor or with a family member. So that was a group of folks that we knew needed to be isolated because they were going to test. If they tested positive for the virus, they had to be isolated, but they may not have an option themselves. So where do you put them? That's why we identified um, an isolated area that wasn't too far away from Atlanta, um, a state park that allows us to have control over um, inner and exit. Um, and that's why we had identified that um, location to put these um, emergency mobile units on site there um, to ensure with round-the-clock security, with around-the-clock um, health officials there on site to help um, whoever would be treated there um, to ensure that we try to get these folks back to good health and keep them safe. So, Senator Jordan, I mean, obviously that that spot's not in in, in your district, but um, what are you hearing from like constituents, average people, about their willingness to take on something like that? We've had that. We've had the patients at Dobbins. I mean, do you think average Georgians are Troubled, willing, uh, confused. What's what's your sense of that? So Dobbins is actually in my district, um, and I feel 
I feel comfortable with Dobbins because they're actually outfitted to deal with things just like this. I mean, they were used during the Ebola virus, um, and a lot of folks didn't realize that, um, and that was contained, and we dealt with it at that point in time. And honestly, I think the military might actually, and these military bases actually may be uniquely able um, because they can keep people from coming in and out. Um, they can house people. They can have access to everything they need in terms of health care. And that's actually what I would like to see is a little bit, instead of hard labor park, maybe t- working in conjunction with our military bases um, across the state to go ahead and, and have a plan in place. Because obviously they're based in the different parts of the state um, that, that may be hit. Cody, how hard is it to coordinate something like that? I'm assuming you've got to work with the Department of Defense and a, and a lot of people. Is it is it realistic to go for stuff like that or not? We've identified other sites that fit that bill. At this time, we were wanting to ensure that um, the antidote kind of met the prescription here. We don't have a huge number of folks that fit this bill, so we wanted – and to be honest with you, we had less than 24 hours between identifying this person um, and to be able to try to find them a place to go. Um, so we felt that this was a temporary solution, especially for this one patient. And these are um, only, you, you've only got seven seven campers. Correct, there. which would be able to hold 14 patients. Um, mm-hmm. So if we start to move in that direction of having more folks that fit this population, um, our team, um, the emergency preparedness task or committee under the task force that the governor identified has already looked at whether it's a, a National Guard facility or other places that would able – be able to hold more folks. Yeah, I, I, I know. I know you're you're about ready to to, to, to yeah. walk away from us, but but uh, we have to address the fact that uh, that uh, the governor brought uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, mm-hmm. into the picture uh, at yesterday's press conference and put her in charge of a of a committee that 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 really is just a, a could be a very stunning problem vis a vis the homeless, the mm-hmm. virus kind of tearing through the the homeless population in Metro Atlanta. Uh, if, What's uh, how, how do you how do you even address that? <laughs> um, so again, we're relying on the expertise of the folks on the task force with John King and General Card, and they have a lot of experience in terms of these emergency situations when you do have um, a, a vulnerable population that it could spread among very quickly, um, and that's why we wanted to bring the mayor in. She's done a lot of great stuff on homeland homelessness for the city, and we wanted to have her expertise at the table. Um, our, our teams have been in contact w- from the beginning on this, um, but we wanted to make sure that we had, again, local officials that know their place that or that that know the place that they serve um, well enough to give us real on-the-ground expertise about how do we do this, how do we do it um, in a way that, you know, Atlanta is the engine of the entire state in terms of economic development, growth, um, so we need to have those folks at the table to tell us, okay, here's how we treat this problem while we still keep commerce going, keep the economy growing, and that sort of thing. Uh, Cody, I'm getting some um, a pressure to take a break, but can you hang on for a yeah, few more sure. minutes? Because what I'd like to do is take this take this quick break, and when we come back, talk a little bit about the legislature and its decision to to uh, call a halt to things, in particular, knowing, uh, you know, what the governor's agenda has been and, and what the perspective on that is from the governor's office. So we'll talk about that when we get back. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB Radio. We'll be back in one minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. 
It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for Bill Nygut. Um, we're joined today by AJC political writer Jim Galloway, GPB lawmakers reporter Patricia Murphy, State Senator Jen Jordan, and Cody Hall, the press secretary for uh, Governor Brian Kemp. Okay, so the legislature, uh, let's just say they've taken a break, and, and we can talk about what exactly that means. Um, I, and I know many people out there might feel like that's good news, uh, that the legislature won't you know, do any damage if they're not in session. But, but No uh, comment, Kevin. Before we, we let you get out of here, Cody, uh, from the governor's perspective, um, is there anything just sitting out there that would really, you know, the governor would feel like we'd really like you guys to come back and, and get this done? Because he, he obviously there's a lot of things he can do to, to influence that. Sure. Number one would be the budget, um, and we hope that um, we can work through some issues there and, and ensure that we give teachers a well-deserved $2,000 pay raise. Um, I think number two would be our public safety reform. Um, number one on that would be our anti-gang bill that gives law enforcement a couple more tools in their tool belt to be able to address this crisis. And then the First Lady's human trafficking package has really, um, I think it Almost every single bill, I think there's three of them, have received unanimous support in the chambers that they originated in. Um, so we would really like to obviously get those across the finish line. I can tell by looking at Senator Jordan, she'd like to jump in here um, and talk a little bit about uh, – about. I mean, Cody's been pretty clear about what the governor's – what's most important to the governor. Look, the, the only thing that we have to do is pass a budget, and I think – in, in light of everything that's happening and especially how COVID-19 is affecting the economy, all of our assumptions for the budget that we've put together at this point are basically, it's all gone away. Um, and we're kind of in this emergency mode with respect to that, to, to come up with, with a legitimate budget that actually refre- reflects what we know the, the revenue may or may not be in the coming months, especially based on the fact that, you know, we may be you know, self-quarantining or there may be issues with respect to COVID-19. I mean, and and on another level, when we talk about the people who are at risk, I mean, when you look at the legislature and the age, the average age of, of a person in the legislature, I mean, we do not need to be gathering. We do not need to be in a place where people come in and out all the time. I mean, you know, a lot of these folks are really susceptible um, to getting coronavirus. And um, so as, as far as I'm concerned, the things we absolutely have to do, I know there are some bills that we have to like change the year in um, for federal funding and that kind of thing and the budget. But other than that, I think we just need to get in and we need to get out. Uh, Jim, uh, Senator Jordan talked a lot about the budget and I and I always feel compelled to do this because we're actually dealing with two budgets. Could you just explain to me and ideally for our listeners exactly what budgets we're talking about, how things work and what's out there 
so that uh, we I don't remain any more confused than I am. Okay, okay. The the the, the smaller budget bill, the supplemental budget bill that that addresses changes to funding in the current fiscal year, that has been passed by both chambers and has been sent to the governor. So we're good through June thirty. And as Cody, as he's satisfied with that, and you would expect him to sign it. I know you don't make. We that will decision. sign it. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. There is a the second the second budget bill is the fiscal year that begins July first and runs for, for twelve months. That is that is going to uh, I think to to to, to Senator Jordan's point is going to require some serious tweaking because. Basically, that process begins with the governor saying how much revenue the state uh, anticipates taking in in terms of taxes and such. Uh, and with the uh, with the, with this economic uh, uh, crash that we're experiencing right now, that 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 presumption, uh, I, I think everybody at this table here would would say no longer sticks. Well, uh, let me point out, by the way, the markets are slightly up early today, so there's maybe some reason for optimism. Mm-hmm. And the governor did talk about this yesterday in his in his press conference, and so he's aware of it. And I and we can ask Cody after we hear the governor um, what what the underlying message is there and uh, what we should expect from him. Okay. Well, we're gonna work on on that. We had a technical glitch. Given the week we've had, uh, I'm I'm impressed. We haven't had more. To be frank, Our, the folks in the uh, control room have done a fantastic job with me all week. But Cody, I mean, he did sure. talk about it. Uh, uh, Senator Jordan makes the point. Jim makes the point. Patricia makes the point. I mean. It, it's it's an awful fluid situation. What's this guidance going to be? Sure. So I think um, you don't have all the data until you have all the data. Um, we had our our February revenue report was up four percent, moved us up to about a one point two on the year growth. Um, so our budget folks and and the state economists will be watching the revenues. That's why um, again a, a subcommittee to the task force was appointed yesterday with Dr. Dorfman the state economist to chair that. Um, we're going to be bringing in private sector folks, House and Senate budget folks um, to ensure that, you know, we don't know what's to come. But that's, again, why why our mantra from the very beginning is we need to be prepared. So as we look at revenues as they come in, we may have to change these kind of things. And that's why um, we, we've taken those steps currently. And hopefully um, it won't be too long before we're able to get the General Assembly back in, um, and then we can finish the people's work. Uh, Patricia, it, it, but it won't be – the numbers won't be better. I think we can be sure of that. Uh, right? Well, right now it's a $28 billion budget based in large part on income tax receipts. Uh, a lot of people are not going to have income, and there will be no taxes on that income. Um, if people – if restaurants need to take a pause, if freelance – Journalists need to take a pause. You don't get paid if you don't work. You can't pay taxes on that. Um, it's just a numbers. Uh, it's just a numbers reality. Um, there are likely to be significant stimulus bills flowing out of Washington, uh, but those will be probably a band aid and not a cast. And so it will be a very different budget situation, um, and the state may need to do some stimulus. I don't know if that's something y'all are considering. Um, but people are going to need to literally make ends meet in, for the period of time, let alone keep their income uh, stable and going up, which is, I think, what most budgets assume. Um, we're not looking at that right now. Well, uh, and then with the, uh, didn't we cut taxes as well? Uh, or is that bill, Jim, still not actually passed oh, that's, and signed? That, that's, that's, that's part of the, the budget proposal. Right, that's that the House has passed. That yeah. the House has passed. The, the Senate, Senate has not. It's a separate House bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and a flat tax, by the way. We've actually changed the tax code structure for people. I don't, I don't know if people notice that. Well, Senator detail. Jordan, you jumped in there. And again, I and have again, a... And the again, the Senate has not <laughs> Exactly. I'm sorry. It's a ha- House pass bill. And, and do you think, what's your uh, sense of the, of the Senate's, what the Senate will do with that bill? I mean... Look, we, we have incredible leadership in the Senate by uh, Chairman Jack Hill, who has been doing this budget thing for, you know, a couple of decades now, probably, um, and knows it in and out. And so we're going to really look to his guidance, which we always do anyway. Um, and he always makes the right calls for the people of Georgia in terms of you know, what to do and what not to do. So we're going to be really leaning in on him and, and the senior leadership in the Senate with respect to that. Um, but I'll tell you that the one thing I can tell you is that we will not pass the House version that has been sent over to us. I can oh. almost 100 percent guarantee that. Okay, I think we might have made a little news there, Jim. What what, what would you well, say? Oh, well, I mean, okay, up, uh, the governor has asked for, for 2,000 for teachers. The House has said 1,000. Do I hear 1500 for the Senate? <laughs> so what I'm saying is, is that I think that the revenue estimates and all of that are going to are going to be changed. And so when you're dealing it's gonna with going to be harder to afford that's all of right. this stuff. Right. So when you're dealing with a different pot of money and then you also have growing needs in terms of health care concerns with with the pandemic that we're facing, um, I think that whatever comes out eventually is going to look very different than what the House passed just based on the realities of what we're dealing with right well, now. Even the mid-year budget has that $100 million that the governor requested, which will come out of the rainy day fund. And thank goodness that the state does have a rainy day fund. Also has $5 million for rural hospitals to begin to prepare and return full funding to county health departments. Because in those counties that we talked about that have no hospitals, the health department is their first source right. of health care. And so that money is already new money out the door that was not planned a week ago. Right. And we passed that immediately yesterday in the yeah. chamber to try to get it to the governor's desk. So, Cody, we're going to work in another break because I know you have to slip <laughs> out. But before you go, I've seen the several phones you have lighting up and, <laughs> and buzzing. Uh, 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 as we head into today and, 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 the, and the governor's office looks, you know, on a longer horizon, um, how do how I mean, how well prepared is Georgia? Are we prepared for worst case scenarios? And, and what is it, you know, you would want people, again, to know as this thing seems to be getting harder and harder for everybody? The governor always starts out by saying that that folks need to remain calm. Um, and we have continuously said that we're in this together. Um, you know, the Georgians that contract this virus, they're our neighbors, our family members, they're our friends. Um, we're going to do whatever it takes to ensure that these folks get adequate care, they get well, and that, um, you know, what may come weeks, months from now, um, this is not a partisan thing. We're in this together. I think George is very well prepared because we have a very experienced team. Homer Bryson at GEMA, um, he's been through a lot of these kind of events. Um, Dr. Toomey at DPH is a very experienced medical doctor, but also a manager of these sorts of things. She's been through the Ebola stuff in Fulton County. Um, she's just very experienced. And then we have great folks in John King and General Cardin that have decades of experience in terms of managing logistics when it comes to these sorts of events. Um, so we have a great team, and, and the governor is going to continue to rely on the experts 
um, that he has around him to make the best choices. And again, we're all in this together. So there's not a little bit of news you want to just break for us before you <laughs> before you step out the door and we go to break. I mean, this is your chance. Well, Kevin, I haven't been able to read my email. I've been on the show, so I'm sure there's some news in there. But um, <laughs> just give it a few hours. I'm sure we'll have something. Okay. Well, hey, thanks a lot for coming in. And, and we are going to get our, our second break done here. And when we come back, I think we'll focus on the legislature, some things that happened late last night, and a little bit more on what might happen uh, going forward. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB Radio. We'll be back in one minute. <laughs> At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for Bill Nygut today. In the studio, I'm joined by uh, the AJC's senior political writer, Jim Galloway, GPP lawmakers reporter, Patricia Murphy, and State Senator Jen Jordan. All right. So the legislature has taken a break as we've talked. Now, uh, Senator Jordan, one thing that, uh, you know, the House, um, Senator, uh, uh, Speaker Ralston really changed up a lot of things the last few days and, and um, seemed to really be the one pushing hard to take a break in the session. Meanwhile, the Senate seemed to be going about business as usual. What's your, what was your take on that? Do we have that right? Is that how it was going on in the Senate? And why did it approach it a different way? Or is that just a perception of my, my part that's not on the mark? Yeah, it's, I'll tell you, it's been weird being up there because you're really in kind of this echo chamber and you're cut off from the world. <laughs> you have no idea what's going on. You're in a chamber. It's dark. There's not even natural light coming in. Um, and we were just doing business as usual. We really were. Every day we were showing up when we were supposed to. We were going to the committee hearings. We were doing our normal back and forth on the floor. And I don't think things or kind of got through to the chamber until yesterday around lunchtime when all of a sudden it was like, whoa, the, the governor may shut down the Capitol um, and tell us all to go home. And at that point, it, it is really the governor being the leader of the state and him making a statement like that. I think it really got everybody's attention. It's interesting to hear you say that because, Jim, as you know, um, we we kind of do that to ourselves, too, and Patricia in the journalism world, right, where you're so focused on the work that you kind of lose touch sometimes with <clears throat> you are actually in the middle of the story, especially a public health story, because you're covering it, but your your own health is involved in that, right, Jim? Yeah, yeah, and it, and and look, we're, uh, you would know better than me. I'm just the one. I'm you know I'm 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 rather low on the totem pole, but 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 how are we and getting uh, lower? If you can't, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. How, how are we? How how, how is the AJC handling uh, changing its operations? You know, we made a decision this week uh, where we realized we were facing a dilemma, right? You've got people gathered in a newsroom, 
And as we were hearing about all these other things going on, I, I mean, I have to confess, it finally dawned on me when I heard they were not going to let fans into the NCAA tournament games, which I had been really looking forward to, had tickets for, and I and I realized, yeah, I got to think for myself about what's going on here. It's more than just a story we're covering from a distance, right? So we realized that we had to be careful because what if, for some reason, a person walked into our newsroom and exposed our staff to the virus, and then the guidance is self-quarantine for 14 days, all of a sudden photographers, reporters would be able to go out and cover the news. So we made a decision to basically tell people, don't come to the newsroom. Work from elsewhere, home or wherever you can, because that way people can be out there. They can follow the common sense you know, uh, guidelines to, to avoid exposure. And we don't find ourselves in a spot where because we've been exposed, we can't do our work. What about you, Patricia? How have you been handling things? Well, one day at a time. <laughs> um, I will say I do think Speaker Ralston was a little ahead of the curve on this. He announced on I think it was Tuesday, it feels like it was last year, um, announced that he was suspending the PAGE program um, to send those high school students back home uh, who come to work at the Capitol. And he suspended the large groups coming to the Capitol. And he said, you know, we just have to be careful about this. And you could really see his leadership having kind of a an effect on the larger body, sort of like the even reporters were like, oh, okay, so you're in, you've got it, you're paying attention. Um, there was a really, I think, dramatic moment on the floor yesterday when James Beverly, who's the minority caucus leader, um, went to the floor and said, I just want to thank Speaker Ralston for his leadership at this time. And uh, Beverly got a standing ovation because it has been a real lack of partisanship. Um, I think he, the Speaker, really was a, a leader in that moment and at a time when we've sort of seen a lack of that elsewhere. Um, and uh, I think it was something that was was uh, very important and maybe set the tone for how the Capitol um, was proceeding. We can actually hear that that soundbite where uh, he, he gave that tribute to Ralston and got the ovation, right? We can play that, Tom. Go ahead. We know in this chamber that we are family and that the speaker does his level-headed best to do what he needs to do to keep us safe. And so I want to commend him for what he's done for us. Uh, in these extraordinary times, I also would like to say to the governor, thank you for appropriating money uh, in his budget. This coronavirus is a pandemic. We've never been through anything like this. Uh, and we're not sure what the outcome is going to be. But at a time like this, it is extremely important that we uh, come together for the benefit of the members in this house. You, you don't hear or see that sort of stuff very much anymore, and it is good to hear it. Uh, another uh, thing I will note is uh, in an effort to uh, also uh, pay attention to staff and others' health concerns, um, Political Rewind will be done entirely over the phone beginning oh. next week. Uh, for the sake of, you know, keeping people at the appropriate, I guess, social distance. Uh, and so, again, Bill, who's not been in, uh, won't be in again. I, I don't. I, they appear to have lost complete track of, of Bill Nygut. <laughs> Where he, in the world is Bill Nygut? Yeah, on, on the other, on, he on will the be other, hosting from home. But I've got a small radio station set up in my in in my office now, so I can. I, I, you won't notice any difference from me. Okay, you'll be you'll be just as sharp and on top of things as if you were in studio, Jim. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, a couple things that passed late last night. We don't have we don't have too much longer, but the Uber tax bill 
got through last night. So uh, someone among you must be be able to explain exactly how that's going to work. And, and when I next time I get in an Uber, it, it's going to cost me more money? An extra 50 cents. Yeah. yeah. So uh, at the beginning of the session, we passed the market facilitator bill, which would allow taxes on um, Internet um, transactions, right, Amazon and the like, to be remitted to the Department of Revenue. Um, in that bill, because of the way it was written, it would arguably impact Uber and Lyft. And um, and it would probably be, especially in the Atlanta area, it's about a 9% tax. Um, Uber and Lyft said it would be the single largest tax or fee um, in the nation on rideshare services. So what happened is there was another bill that's come along that basically uh, caps it a flat 50 cent fee per rideshare, um, which, of course, is a lot less than the 9 percent. But at the same time, at least um, it is something, some revenue coming in. And because it came after um, the the market facilitator bill that's, that goes into effect April 1st, it will actually take precedence over that one. And, the, um, and this has passed the House, but not the Senate. Yet. No, it, it, it passed, passed It passed the Senate. Senate. Okay. Yeah. And so what we needed to do, because there was also some um, farm relief on there as well, mm-hmm. um, when it went back over to the House, they just had to agree to it. So it passed there. Ah. So, it, so the governor signs it before April 1st and we're good. Absolutely. <laughs> good if good if you're happy about paying the extra well, if you're 50 happy cents. about paying fifty cents rather than nine percent. Right, which would be more than right in the almost 50 every cents. case, unless yeah. it were a very very short ride. Mm-hmm. Um, Patricia, uh, well, I was going to mention another bill that has passed, and I think you were keeping a close eye on it, Senator Jordan. Was that ethylene oxide reporting bill for facilities like Sterigenics when they have those unauthorized releases of ethylene oxide? Yeah. So originally, um, it was a Democratic bill that required anytime there was a release of ethylene oxide that it had to be, um, it basically had to be reported to uh, uh, the department, DNR, EPD, and then EPD needed to put it on the website. Um, The governor um, had his version of that bill filed, but it didn't require kind of the transparency provision that the, the, the website presence right, of, that of would information require that the information be provided to the public, which was the whole point of the right. bill. Because we have folks, I have people in my district that are sending Open Records Act requests to EPD every single day, um, and so what this will do is it'll take the burden off EPD, and maybe we can start rebuilding trust with the public in terms of EPD actually being transparent about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one bill that did not pass the House. Uh, and uh, that's significant, and that is uh, a kind of an omnibus gambling bill. Yeah, what happened with that? Because originally we were just talking about the sports betting, and then all of a sudden, I mean, we talk about casinos and horse racing every year, but this time, I, I know the owner, or I'm sorry, the representatives, CEOs, and presidents of the sports franchises in town really wanted that sports betting bit isolated, right? Yeah, Jim? and 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 I'm not sure that the, uh, this was this was mostly on this was uh, addressed casino and horse racing. I'm not sure that it, it, it addressed sports betting. I think sports betting is still out there. Uh, but the casino and horse racing bill, uh, the the idea was to take the revenue and divide it uh, between, I think, uh, send some of it out for rural health care and other uh, for for uh, to bolster the Hope Scholarship. You had some uh, some pushback among uh, House Democrats over whether whether to include the Democrats wanted to include. Uh, the mandate for means testing on those scholarships and put that into the Constitution. 
Uh, Republicans did not. Uh, it was that 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 was a, uh, ended up being a deal breaker. So I mean, it goes back to all of the original conflicts around the scholarships that the lottery fundamentally right. uh, uh, provides through its income. Uh, because they are not means-tested scholarships. Right, right. They have drifted away from means-testing. Right. Um, what do you think will happen to the sports gambling? I mean, Senator Jordan, is the mood to pretty much support that in the Senate, or what would you say? So I would think with sports betting, um, which is a, a much more limited kind of version, um, there may be more of an appetite, but I'm not sure. But again, I go did, back did, did to— Did the Burt Jones bill move? The Burt Jones bill did not move, but there had been—I think there had been suggestions that there may be a way to to get it over after crossover. Um, but the problem is now, again, I'll go back yeah. to what I was saying. I don't—I mean, I don't think anything's going to move except for the budget. Uh, you're you're adamant about that. I, mean, I am. And why? Just because of the health concerns? Or? Look, I, I I think that we are just at the beginning of this, and um, I think we need to be prepared and lead on this issue and, and make people understand this is a pandemic. Um, this is very serious, and one of the, the best things that we can do is um, self-isolate, um, work from home if we can, because we need to kind of uh, keep the spread of it, um, because we can't overload our hospitals. We don't have enough beds. We don't have enough ventilators. We don't have enough tests. We don't have enough health care providers, and especially in the rural parts of this state, I mean, it would be devastating um, if it if it continued to spread. Yeah. You know, uh, um, Kevin, one thing in our, in our earlier discussion about closing schools and 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 healthcare in Georgia, it, it I had forgotten this, but there is a county out toward Hard Labor Creek in Tolliver County. Uh, uh, there's there that's a county with no healthcare, so they set up a clinic, and it's attached to the local school system. It is paid through, paid for through the school system, and it sits next to the only combination high school, middle school, and elementary school. So it's 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 you know it's one of those situations where you close the school, you might be closing the health clinic too. Jim, I think that uh, that echoes the point that I think Cody was making when he was here and the governor's concern. And more importantly, that's the last point on the show today because we're just about out of time. So that'll do it for today's Political Rewind. I'd like to thank Jim Galloway, State Senator Jordan, and Patricia Murphy. Thank you for being with us as well. Remember, if you missed any part of the show, you can find it on gpvnews.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And again, Bill Nygut will be back on Monday at 9 a.m.